Here at Liverpool School of Law and Social Justice, human rights research is part of our identity. It is at the center of our mission. Hello and welcome to the THE Connect podcast. This episode is produced in partnership with the University of Liverpool and I'm your host, Ashton Wenborn. The United Nations Sustainable Development Goals strive to achieve peace and prosperity for people and the planet. Essential to achieving these goals is the protection and reimagining of human rights, locally, nationally and globally. I'm joined today by Amanda Cahill-Ripley and Azadeh Chalabi, who are both senior lecturers in law at the University of Liverpool. The university is committed to addressing the global challenges facing society and the environment by improving health and education, addressing inequality, ensuring economic sustainability and tackling climate change. Amanda and Azadeh will be speaking with me about their work in international human rights law and how this relates to sustainable development. Would you both like to introduce yourselves to the listeners and give us a brief overview of the work you do at Liverpool? Uh, hi, Ashton. Uh, my name is Azade Chalabi. I'm a senior lecturer in law at the University of Liverpool School of Law and Social Justice. My research on human rights primarily focuses on the gap between human rights theory and human rights practice. One of my main research interests is human rights action planning. Uh, My second uh, book, uh, National Human Rights Action Planning, published by Oxford University Press, is the first volume dedicated to this area. I'm currently working on the human right to environment, more specifically two research projects, one on the nature, scope and content of the human right to environment, and the other on corporate climate change litigation from a human rights perspective. My next project will be a comprehensive longitudinal study to take stock of three decades of advancing and implementing human rights action plans. Hello, everybody. My name is Amanda Cahill-Ripley. I'm also a senior lecturer at the University of Liverpool School of Law and Social Justice. My work focuses on international human rights law, and I'm an expert specifically on economic, social and cultural rights. I focus in particular on these rights in the context of peace building and development, including looking at forms of transitional and transformative justice. I've also worked extensively on the right to water and the right to an adequate standard of living. So at an international level, my work focuses on the nexus between international human rights law, sustainable peace and sustainable development, and how the triple nexus, including humanitarian assistance in terms of policy work, how all of these areas intersect and how complex this makes the the field. I'm currently working on my monograph for Cambridge University Press, which looks at economic, social and cultural rights and enhancing human security, looking at different uh, parts of the peace building process. Uh, It examines how such rights can contribute to building sustainable peace, including sustainable development. I'm also working with the University of Glasgow at the moment and the Free University in Berlin on a project called Endless Conflicts. And here I'll be considering peace agreements and whether they are a solid foundation for sustainable peace and development. Thank you both for that introduction. So I know that the University of Liverpool prides itself on being a research intensive university and I think Azadeh has briefly touched on that idea of the difference between human rights law and human rights practice. 
So it would be really interesting to hear about how you're bridging that gap in order to produce research that has real world impact. Here at Liverpool School of Law and Social Justice, human rights research is part of our identity. It is at the center of our mission. So we are committed to contributing to the promotion of human rights and social justice through the excellence and rigor of our research and policy work. We strive to promote the social relevance and impact of our work. So Liverpool Law Department hosts 11 research clusters, such as International Law and Human Rights Unit, EU Children's Rights Unit, Feminist Legal Research and Action Network, Charity Law and Policy Unit, which all are crucial in supporting the building of external partnerships with a wide range of actors at the national, regional and international level, providing a platform for knowledge exchange and coordinating timely responses to current legal and policy developments and human rights challenges. For example, focusing on children's rights, a recent research project at our, at our children's rights unit has been at the forefront of the campaign to bring children's rights into the Brexit negotiation. Or another project at our law and non-communicable disease unit developed policy tools for children's rights and worked to build legal capacity, which in turn reduces children's exposure to harmful marketing. So we have world leading experts in different areas of human rights and their studies have different real life um, impacts. And can you also tell us a bit more about your work in human rights action planning and its relevance to the SDGs? Yeah, sure. Uh, well, the idea of developing a national human rights action plan dates back to the Vienna Declaration and Program of Action in 1993. So despite significant proactive role these plans can play in implementing human rights and transforming them from the realm of rhetoric to the realm of reality, surprisingly little has been written on human rights action planning. So when I started uh, working on human rights action planning, there was literally no book or any article on this topic. So adapting these plans has been through different waves. So the first wave between 1994 to 2001, with only around 15 countries adapting these plans and most of them very short and broad. The second wave, 2001 to 2014, when some countries adapted subsequent plans, but still mostly based on the traditional concept of planning, which is theoretically baseless, state-centric, and top-down. And they, are, uh, they were mostly cen uh, central planning. I released the first series of academic uh, articles on uh, national human rights action planning between 2014 and 2016, and then published the first book on human rights action planning in 2018 by Oxford University Press. So my book deals with uh, human rights action plans from theoretical, doctrinal, empirical and practical perspectives. I developed the first general theory of human rights action planning, including four sub-theories, contextual theory, substantive theory, procedural theory, and analytical theory of human rights planning, putting forward a new concept of human rights planning, which is participatory, top-down, bottom-up, evidence-based, and theory-laden. At the empirical level, I conducted a cross-case analysis of national human rights action plans of 53 countries in order to identify the problems facing these plans in different phases of planning and the root causes of them. At the doctrinal level, I examined the nature and scope of the state obligation to adapt a national human rights action plan. At the practical level, I worked on various practical strategies and techniques to advance the effectiveness of these plans at different phases of planning from situation analysis and preparation phase to development phase, implementation phase, and monitoring and evaluation phase. 
So after publishing my articles and book, perhaps coincidentally, a new surge of human rights action planning has begun since 2016 and accelerated since 2018. Um, and the UN High Commission for Human Rights has also started to systematically call on a state to adapt national human rights action plan in, the U in their UPR follow-up reports. So at the moment, more than 140 national human rights action plans have adapted, have been adapted in at least 75 countries. So you might be interested to know that here at Liverpool School of Law, um, we also created the first ever module on human rights action planning for our LLM students. We strive to cement Liverpool's reputation as one of the leading cities of human rights action planning. So now, uh, just quickly on your question about human rights action planning and UNSDG as well, human rights are essential to achieving almost all these goals, and um, this plan can be an effective tool for human rights-based sustainable development as it can cover those goals. And so, uh, for example, the first goal, end poverty in all its forms everywhere, has to do with implementing the right to an adequate standard of living and the right to social security. You know, we can achieve these goals by realizing human rights. So that was just one example. Other example would be the right to education, which is which is related to the uh, to another goal, which is quality um, education or gender equality has to do with women's rights and elimination of all forms of discrimination against women. Even the economic dimension of the UNSDG, such as the goal of decent work, has to do with the right to work, prohibition of child labor. So the realization of human rights lies at the core of the 2030 UN agenda. And the role of human rights in achieving this agenda is particularly important because while the UN agenda is not a legally binding instrument, the regional and international human rights conventions are binding instruments so they're monitored at the regional and global level by their respective committee of independent experts and in most cases these instruments can also be legally claimed at the national level and are used as an effective tool for achieving sustainable development so yes these plans can indeed be an effective tool for the UN agenda 2030 as well great thank you very much for that and um, you've spoken a little bit there about the platform that the Sustainable Development Goals offers for that knowledge sharing. And Amanda, it would be really great to hear a little bit about the way that that framework allows you to collaborate with other government bodies, NGOs, and the higher education sector more widely. Um, yeah, so I think one of the key things about um, human rights and the UN SDGs is that um, it's really highlighted the overlaps and the intersections between um, the different areas that we need to work on if we're going to achieve sustainable development. So I think as human rights lawyers, what we're trying to do is we're trying to look at how our research can develop human rights law further, um, what we call delega ferenda, which is how the law should be, and to see how we can contribute to achieving these uh, global agendas and to tackling these these global problems so what we're seeking to do and this comes back to the input impact point that Azadi was making is that we're trying to not just develop the law but also influence and contribute to those wider policies um, and to those wide and to practice on the ground as well having the SDG framework has created this shared vision if you like this universal goals we have this universal agenda which everyone is aware of whether it be governments whether it be ngos whether it be academics so that's created a, a an impetus for 
opportunities to collaborate. It stimulated discussions, but it's also um, led to a healthy critique about existing policy, existing practice, existing research, what we can do better and how we can develop new insights by working together. I've also been working with the UN Office of the High Commission on Human Rights, looking at conflict prevention and economic and social rights. And then most recently, I've been working with a New York-based NGO, the uh, Economic, Social and Cultural Rights Network. And it's um, a consortium of lots of on-the-ground grassroots and NGO uh, members. And we've been working for two years now to produce a briefing report on women in particular and economic, social and cultural rights in conflict. So we've been highlighting SDG 5 on gender inequality, amongst others, and looking at the vulnerability of women in conflict um, affected settings and how um, that hinders their development. I've also been working on SDG 6, clean water and sanitation, in particular with the Palestinian Water Authority um, and taking part in some high level conferences organised by the Netherlands Foreign Ministry in trying to enhance water for everybody and, and achieve uh, the human right to water. And again, I'll be going to Jordan later in the year to work um, with the UNESCO Chair on Human Rights and the UNESCO Chair on Water um, to try and, again, tackle um, the challenge of, of achieving SDG 6 for everyone. Um, one more point I'd just like to make on partnerships is that we, as international human rights lawyers, we, we work very much at that international level, but it's also important domestically. And I think when we think about the Sustainable Development Goals, we tend to think about it being uh, a global policy and thinking about developing states but it's also relevant for the domestic state and so I've been working with the Scottish Parliament um, and we've been looking at how to incorporate economic social and cultural rights within the new Scottish Human Rights Bill so using human rights as a tool really to help the United Kingdom to help Scotland achieve um, the sustainable development goals. You mentioned that idea of rethinking some existing concepts and and the idea of how the law should be, which I suppose suggests that there are some aspects of international human rights law that are not operating in the way that they should be or, or as effectively as you would like them to. And so it would be really interesting to hear about some of the biggest challenges that you're both coming up against at the moment in trying to move your work forward and make it as effective as possible. I think particularly around the area of sustainable development and human rights, there have been several developments. So we've seen uh, a new impetus around a binding treaty on the human right to development, which is a specific human right. So this is different to a human rights-based approach to development, and it's different from the sustainable development goals. It's actually a legal, specific human right to development. And this is quite controversial for some states, but we've seen an impetus around that. In conjunction with that, we've seen um, the UN Committee on Economic, Social and Cultural Rights, who are drafting a new, what we call a general comment um, on sustainable development. And alongside that, we've also seen a new set of expert guidelines on the human rights of future generations. And that's going to be released very soon. And throughout these discussions, we've become aware as lawyers that 
We need to reimagine several of the accepted concepts within international human rights law. So I'll give you one example. Um, in economic, social and cultural rights, we talk about the concept of maximum available resources. And we work on the basis of what we call progressive realisation of rights. So that's, let's take the example of water, that a state has to progress in achieving the human right to water, the enjoyment for everyone, because they can't necessarily reach optimum uh, enjoyment of that right immediately. It takes time, depends on resources and the existing level of development. But thinking about sustainable development and thinking about the agenda, um, the 2030 agenda on development and thinking about the human rights of those who are in future generations of those to come means rethinking that idea of maximum available resources and reframing it. So we now have to think of, well, rather than saying we'll get this to the maximum we possibly can, this level, we need to think about how can we fulfill the enjoyment of the rights, the rights, say the right to water for those that are living now presently but also ensure that we preserve enough water for those that are to come. So this means thinking about maximum available resources in a different way. It's about having perhaps more equitable distribution of resources. And it may be about a concept of having a ceiling on um, development rather than just a minimum floor. We always talk about the minimum threshold, though it shouldn't fall below that particular minimum but now we're thinking do we need a ceiling as well so this is coming about around these discussions um, around the human rights of future generations also around the idea of just transitions which people in in human rights law are talking about but also people in economics people in human geography um, and this is about making sure no one is left behind which is written into the agenda in that transition to a, uh, an environmentally sustainable economy. You've mentioned in relation to the availability of water, how important it is to provide for future generations. I'm sure that preparing for the future makes up a huge part of the work you do in creating a just and fair society. And another aspect of future-proofing your work is training up the next generation of human rights lawyers. So could you tell me a little bit about the work you're doing to train future generations, whether that's within the university or in the wider world? As a day, I think you're working on a postgraduate course in international human rights law at the moment. Yeah, I, uh, I was a director of the postgraduate um, task program here at uh, Liverpool School of Law and Social Justice. We have a world leading LLM program in human rights law. Our teaching is um, research-based and practical-oriented, led by internationally recognized experts. So our aim is to help our students to become an independent researcher um, with intrinsic motivation and commitment. We have um, 
a compulsory rigor research training to all students on LLM programs as an integral part of LLM teaching at Liverpool, which, which I normally teach. We teach both qualitative and quantitative methods and their recent developments, such as qualitative comparative analysis, various cases study design. For instance, we go through more than 16 different designs for cases study, factorial survey, fuzzy logic, etc. We also seek to get our students engaged with the world beyond the university, helping them to add and apply their knowledge in real life situations. Uh, for example, through Pro Bono Project run by our law clinic, street law program, internship, and other extracurricular activities we offer. We have a very active human rights unit here at Liverpool School of Law, um, which hosts, uh, which um, houses a broad range of research activity and engages with international, regional and national partners in providing expertise in international law and human rights. We always encourage our students to engage in um, uh, various um, um, activities we organize for them. Uh, for example, this year, our human rights unit and the School of Law took our LLMs to visit sessions of the UN Human Rights Council Advisory Committee in Geneva. Uh, in addition to observing these sessions, obviously, students had the opportunity to, to meet with the UN staff members, meet with staff members of the UK missions to other international organizations, such as the World Trade Organization, visit the International Committee of the Red Cross uh, Museum, etc. We have similar uh, visit to The Hague, um, we will have for our undergrad as well um, this summer. We are very excited about our summer school, um, which is about resilience of human rights in times of crisis. Um, we will have the president of the Parliamentary Assembly of the Council of Europe and former president of the Euro uh, European Court of Human Rights with us this year. So really a wide range of activities here in uh, our School of Law and Social Justice, and we all do our best to help our students to be committed to uh, promoting and protecting and protecting human rights, which is our mission here. Um, yeah, I mean, just to add to what Azadi has just said, we also, um, last last year I was in charge of internationalization for the school. So we've also been working to embed some of this global citizenship within our curriculum um, at undergraduate level. So we've been looking at how we can embed, in, for example, we've got a new LLB module I think it's in its second year now um, on international human rights law, which looks at global perspectives and regional systems, such as those seen in Africa and Asia and the Americas. It also looks at the human right to development. Um, and as part of that internationalization strategy as well, we've got um, visiting fellows which have been coming to us in the in the law school now, and they come from all over the world. Um, we also have student mobility and student exchanges. So we have this exchange, uh, which is fantastic in terms of comparative law, but also in terms of cultural exchange. Um, so as, as, as Eddie said, we have a lot going on in the school, which is trying to, to um, educate the future, not just human rights lawyers, but the future citizens um, in of the world. Well, I hope that some of those future global citizens have listened to today's episode and will be inspired to take action in international human rights law too. It's been fascinating to hear about the work you're both doing in this space, so thank you for sharing your insights with us today and thank you to our listeners for tuning in. For more insights from this conversation, you can visit the Times Higher Education and University of Liverpool Hub 
at timeshighereducation.com forward slash University of Liverpool. Subscribe to the THE Connect podcast to receive the latest episodes as soon as they're released. (laughs) 